The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. So the reading is about the call of Abram. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, well again, Acts, good morning, almost good afternoon. Uh, I will try not to keep us here into the afternoon, Uh, but again, I'm Pastor Josh, and it's just great to be with you guys today. Uh, We're starting a series called How to Read Your Bible, and I'm going to be completely honest with you. This was one of those times where it became very clear early on, I had bitten off a bit more than I had anticipated. Right? So I'm not sure if you guys have ever had those kind of house projects. Uh, for Erica and I, I always think of the pit, which at one point was a pond that we wanted to turn into this fire pit. And this is 20 feet by 15 foot pond. And we're like, we don't want a pond. Let's build a fire pit. And we do this at the Saturday night. And we're like, this is a great idea. Right? Remember what we talked about last week? Good idea, great idea. Someone something else should do or someone you're willing to do. We didn't entirely realize what we were going to have to do to turn this into a fire pit. And so this probably took us 50 hours, 75 hours of just hard sweat and tears and bugs and bigger bugs and snakes and just way more than we had originally anticipated. Well, when it comes to how to read your Bible and this idea that as Christians, we believe that Scripture is the breath of God. It's the life of God. It's how he speaks to his people 2 Timothy says it's how he equips us to do the good work he prepared for us. When you start to look at how big the Bible is, how many different authors, how many different genres, the time span, literally covering thousands of years of history, right? all of a sudden it became very clear, wow, this might have been slightly more ambitious than I had originally anticipated. And yet as I started spending time And as digging deeper in, found some really cool tools that realizing that it's not just our church that's trying to figure out what scripture is, but Christians all across the world are doing it. And one of the projects that's happening right now is something called the Bible Project. And it's a group of Christian artists and Christian theologians, and they're coming together to walk through the different genres of scripture and help people equip them to understand how to read the Bible. So we're going to start off with a video that's going to kind of frame a bit of what we're going to be talking about today, and then specifically today we're going to look at the Old Testament. So I invite you guys to watch this with me. 
The Bible is a collection of many books, telling one unified story from beginning to end. But all those books were written in different literary styles. Yeah, think of it like walking into a bookstore where every aisle has a different kind of literature. There's history or poetry or nonfiction. And when you choose an aisle and pick up a book, you're going to have very different expectations, different things that you're looking for. Right, they're all literature, but they communicate in really different ways. Yes, and so the same thing is true for the Bible. If you don't pay attention to what style it's written in, you will miss out on the brilliance of each book. So what are the main types of literature in the Bible? Well, first and foremost is narrative. It makes up a whopping 43% of the Bible. After that is poetry, which is 33% of the Bible. And then there's what you could call prose discourse, which makes up the remaining 24%. Nearly half the Bible is narrative. Yes, and this is no accident. Stories are the most universal form of human communication. Our brains are actually hardwired to take in information through story. And stories are really enjoyable. Why is that? Well, stories train us to make sense of the seemingly random events that happen in life by taking those events and then putting them in a sequence. And then together you can start to see the meaning and purpose of it all. And what links this all together? Well, good stories always have a character who wants something. And then through these characters, an author can explore life's big questions like who are we or what's really important in life. And a good story always involves some kind of conflict some challenge to overcome, just like in our own lives. And that forces us to think about our own challenges, why there's so much pain or disappointment in the world, and then what can we do about it? And stories usually end with some kind of resolution, giving us hope for our own stories. Since these are Bible stories, are the characters showing me how I should live? Yeah, that's not quite the point. Most Bible characters are deeply flawed. You should not be like them. But we are supposed to see ourselves in them, which helps us then see our lives and failures from a new perspective. And without even realizing it, these stories will start to mess with you and change how you see the world and other people and yourself. Now, there are different types of narrative in the Bible. Yeah, there's historical narrative, but also narrative parables, short biographical narratives like the four gospels. We'll look at all these in later videos. Okay, next up is poetry, which honestly, I don't read a lot of. Yeah, you're like most people. But one out of every three chapters in the Bible is poetry. Yeah, why so much poetry? Well, poems mainly speak through dense, creative language, linking together images to help us envision the world differently. Poems use lots of metaphor to evoke your emotions and your imagination. Lots of fancy language, but wouldn't it be easier just to tell me what I need to know? Well, think about it. In life, we tend to form mental ruts, and we think in these familiar, well-worn paths that are very hard to get out of through logic or reasoning. And what good poetry does is force you off the familiar path into new territory. Sneaky. And there's different types of poetry in the Bible. There's lots of types of songs or psalms. There's the reflective poetry of the wisdom books and then the passionate resistance poetry of the prophets. Okay, the last big literary type is called prose discourse, and it makes up a quarter of the Bible. Yeah, these are speeches, letters, or essays. And the focus here is building a sequence of ideas or thoughts into one linear argument that requires a logical response. Like, hey, have you thought about this thing? You should also consider how it connects to this other thing. And if you do, then you will see that this is the result. And in light of that conclusion, therefore, you should probably stop doing that one thing so that this other thing will be the outcome. So you're persuading me with reason. Yeah, discourse forces you to think logically and consistently and then do something about it.
Biblical discourse is found in law collections, in wisdom literature, and the letters written by the apostles. Okay, so each book of the Bible has one literary style. No, actually most books have a primary literary style, like narrative for example, but then embedded in the narrative you'll come across poems or parables or a collection of laws. Every biblical book is a unique combination of literary styles. And to read that book well I need to be familiar with each literary type and how it works. Yeah, so you know what to pay attention to and what questions you should ask. But before we look at each type, there's one more unifying feature of biblical literature that's really important and really cool, and that's what we'll explore next. So through this series, we're going to break up seven genres of scripture. They're kind of sub-genres of the ones that we just saw. We're going to start today with Old Testament narrative, then we're going to look at the prophets, then we're going to look at the gospels and acts, then we're going to look at the epistles, then we're going to look at wisdom literature, the Psalms, and then finally, apocalyptic revelation literature. And in each of them, we're going to kind of do the series in the sermon the same way, where I'm going to start off giving a broad brushstroke view of, hey, here's some things to be looking for in this specific genre. Right? And then we'll end by actually diving into a chapter of Scripture to say, okay, this is how this flushes out. This is how Old Testament narrative works. This is how the Gospels work. Uh, but to do that, and in fact, for each of the genres, there's going to be three questions that we're going to be looking at. Ooh, sorry. First, how does God protect and provide for his people? Right? So what is God up to in this section of Scripture? Second, what are the consequences of mankind's sin and rebellion? And finally, what does God ask of his people and what's he asking of me? Now, the reason why these questions are so important is because often when we open up the Bible, we think and we assume, all right, God, I'm going to turn open this magic book and it's going to immediately and directly apply to what's happening in my life right now. And we put ourselves at the center of God's story. But what becomes really clear when you're reading through Scripture is that we're not the center of God's story. God is the center of God's story. And what he's up to and how he is protecting his people and how he is caring for his people. Now, mankind has a role in the story, but what we find out pretty quick is mankind is kind of like the toys from the island of misfit toys. If you remember that from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, right? And all the toys that don't quite work right, that's us. And because we don't quite work right, the world it doesn't quite look right. And so when we look at Scripture, it becomes really clear there are consequences to our sin. There are consequences when we don't act the way we're supposed to. And then the last area is once we are digging into Scripture, realizing that it was first and foremost not written to 21st century Americans, right? Scripture was written to first the Israelites and then the early church. And the questions that they were asking aren't always the same questions that we're asking. And so as we encounter Scripture, it's first putting our mindset into there, what they were hearing, and then we can figure out how that relates to us. And when we're talking about Old Testament narrative, there are some myths that I want to cover first before we dive in, right? And myth number one is we're supposed to consider the characters in the Bible role models for godly living. I'm pretty sure my favorite line of that whole video was when the guy asked, so we're supposed to look up to them, and the narrator of that video laughed. And he's like, no, no, no. He says, in fact, most Bible characters are deeply flawed, and you should not be like them, right? When you look at even some of the heroes of faith, David, right? 
Well, he had adultery, and then he killed the husband, right? Not the model that we should be living our lives after. We're going to look at Abraham today, and Abraham is one of the funniest stories in the Old Testament because of how often he diverts off the path that God has him. God had promised to make him a great nation through his wife, but he kept trying to pretend that his wife was his sister because he would get a dowry for her. He would get money for her, and his wife apparently was quite cute, and so he would go to these different countries, right? And he would tell his wife, you know what, the king might think you're attractive, so let's play this whole brother-sister thing. Guys, don't follow that advice. That's horrible, horrible advice. You will be on the couch for the rest of your life, right? But what we do find is that God uses deeply flawed people, just like you and I, and it gives us hope. Because again, as much as I just want to make fun of Abraham or make fun of David, I've got my own brokenness. I've got my own ways that I rebel. And yet, God still worked for them. He still fought for them. And he still used them, which gives us hope. Now, the second myth of the Old Testament is that God somehow evolves between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right? We've all kind of heard this before. right? The God of the Old Testament is mean. And then Jesus shows up, and he's a nicer God. He's a kinder God. And so we start to pretend that there are different types of gods. Right? That God somehow evolved. He changed. But what the truth is, is that God in the Old Testament had a different role, a different responsibility than what he had in the New Testament. One of the key points of Old Testament narrative is that God had promised a Messiah. He had promised a hero who was going to come and rescue Israel. And he had promised that that Messiah was going to come through the line of Abraham. And so the God of the Old Testament is in some ways acting like a jailer, right? So if you work at a jail, your job is to keep order. Your job is to keep both the prisoners safe and the other officers safe. And so you might be very strict in that job, right? But when that jailer goes home, he has a different role. He has a different responsibility. Now he's with his family and he might be more compassionate. He might be more loving. He might crack jokes. He's going to be less strict, because his role and his responsibility at home is different when he's trying to keep things from going off the rails. The God of the Old Testament's chief responsibility was to steer the story to Jesus, was to make sure that the hero, the Messiah, the one who could actually take care of evil, not just keep people in jail, but actually break them out, give them a new life. And so it's not that there's different gods, or God somehow changed, but his responsibility and the role that he served did. And so when we look through the Old Testament, we look through it through the lines of he's driving towards Jesus, this hero, this Messiah, who's going to come and who will rescue, who will redeem. And then the last myth is that God wrote the Old Testament to us, 21st century Americans. We talked about this a little bit ago, about how often we put ourselves at the center of the story. But the reality is, for us to really understand what God is doing, we have to ask the original questions. We have to get to know the original audience of who God was speaking to. Because when we do that, then we can understand how it applies to us. And when you look at Old Testament narrative, there's some key themes that keep popping up over and over and over again. There's creation and fall. Right? So God creates the world to be good. Humanity mucks it up. 
And God continues to try to make creation good again. It's part of the reason why he sends the Messiah. God's selection of Israel, a people for his own that will carry the promise of the hero, the Messiah. We're going to read about that in the story of Abraham. We see a God who fights for his people. We see laws to protect God's people from themselves. And so he creates things like don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Even some of the more random laws, like why can't they eat pork? Well, pork in the old, de- in the old days was really dangerous to eat. People didn't know how to cook it. And so if you ate pork, there was a good chance you were going to get food poisoning and you could actually die. And so God created laws to protect his people from things that could hurt them. And one of the major promises is that a redeemer would come through the line of David, who's from the line of Abraham. And finally, the consequences of rebelling against God. When we decide our own best thinking is going to do better than God's best thinking. There's consequences to that. We're going to look at how this works in and through the story of Abraham. Right? And his name starts off as Abram. And God eventually names him Abraham. And his story is one not where Abraham was this awesome guy. In fact, the story starts off, Abraham is just living his own life. And God reaches down and he makes him a promise. And we read about this promise in chapter 12. God says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, even in Genesis, God had a plan. A Messiah was going to come. And the Messiah was going to come through the line of Abraham. Now what we find out is at this point, Abraham is not a young man. Abraham is about 75 years old, Scripture tells us. Think about that for a second. At 75 years old, he doesn't have kids yet. Most of us at 75 aren't thinking, you know what? Now's a good time to start a family. I'm young. I'm spry. I can keep up with kids, right? No, no, no. 75 is not when you would think, now's the time to have children. And yet God says, I have a plan for you. I haven't forgotten you. And Abraham believes him. And so he starts following God, trusting that, all right, I don't know how this is going to work, but we'll see how it goes. And that connects to our faith, right? be like, yeah, God, okay, I'll follow you here. But then something happens. It, it doesn't go according to plan. About five years go by. And Abraham's starting to wonder, you know, now I'm 80. God, are you still working? Is this still the plan? Because I don't have kids. Someone else is going to inherit, not my family. And God says this in chapter 15. He says, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And he says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will, who will inherit my estate is Elas of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. His faith started to waver. And it makes sense. We can relate to that. We see our story in that. Like, God, the, the, the math doesn't work anymore. Someone else is going to inherit my estate. But God wasn't done yet. Scripture goes on and it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Abram. It says, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. 
He took him outside and said, look up at the sky, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed, and he accredited it to him as righteousness. That's our faith journey. We need to be refreshed. We need to be encouraged. What we find is that Paul, in the New Testament, long, long way forward in the story, ties Abraham's faith to our faith. He says this in Galatians. So again, I ask you, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us, by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul directly connects Abraham's story to the Messiah and to us. He says Abraham wasn't considered righteous, wasn't considered faithful because he was doing the right things. Abraham didn't work his way to heaven. Heaven came to Abraham. God showed up. And so Paul says faith isn't about doing something. Faith is standing on the promise of God. For Abraham, the promise was that you will have a family. You will have a legacy that will bless the world. For us as Christians, we know what that legacy and promise was. It was Jesus. And so faithful us isn't reaching up to heaven. It's not trying to do the right thing. It's saying, no, God, I want to hold firm to your promises. I want to hold firm to who you said you are. I want to trust in you, and in trusting in you, you'll show me what to do. You'll equip us for those good works. You see this really clearly of how the story of Abraham ends. So God says, I promise you. But even then, you ever do this? We're like, okay, God, I believe, but I have a couple other questions. Just a few other things, little notes, and then, then I'll really believe, right? That's what Abraham does. But Abraham says, sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of this land? So the Lord said to him, now this is where the story gets weird. Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. All right, that's a strange offer. Abraham brought them all. Then he cut them in two and arranged the two halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Weird. This is one of those times where understanding what the original audience heard and what we hear is really important. So if we're trying to make ourselves the center of the story... And we're trying to figure out, God, how can I make sure? How can I believe? Well, apparently, maybe we're supposed to go get a goat, a heifer, a ram, and cut them in half. Kind of weird, but that's what the Bible says. There's something deeper going on here. You see, in ancient times, if you wanted to make a contract with someone, if you wanted to make a covenant with someone, you would take an animal. You would split the animal in two, and you'd create a path out of it. And then you would go to whoever you were making a contract with, and you would say, 
I agree to these terms, you agree to these terms, the contract is set, and if either one of us breaks a vow, well, we'll be cut in two like these animals. It's a rather severe contract, a rather severe covenant. And so when Abraham asked God, how can I be sure that you will fulfill your promise? God says, well, we'll create a covenant. And so Abraham sets it all up. But then something happens. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace, be buried at a good old age, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Oh. But the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Now, this is the part. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham was asleep. But a contract was set. You see, typically a contract, both sides have to agree. Both sides have to say, I promise to remain faithful. But Abram couldn't remain faithful. He was broken, just like we are. He was going to face plan eventually. And God knew if he tried to make Abram live up to that contract, to that covenant, he would forfeit. So what does God do? God says, we'll make a contract. And he puts Abram to sleep. And God walks through by himself. And he says, it's going to be on me. I promise to protect you. I promise to provide for you. I promise never to leave you. I promise a Messiah will come through your line who will redeem the world. And it's not going to be based on what you do. God says it's going to be based on what I do and what my son does. That's the covenant. That's the contract. And in that story, we find our story. We find a God who says, you don't have to work your way up to me. You don't have to earn my love. So I already love you. I just want you to respond to it. I want you to live out of your identity as my children. And so in the same way that we're loved, we love. In the same way that we're forgiven, we forgive. In the same way that he protects us, we go out and we protect a broken world. You see, the story of Scripture is always driving us to Jesus. It's always driving us towards a God that we can trust, a God who provides, a God who forgives, a God who will go to any length to have a relationship with us. The Old Testament narrative teaches us that we have a God we can trust. It teaches us that there are real consequences to our sin. And it teaches us that we have a God that despite or in spite of that sin. He still rescues and redeems and invites us to be a part of the adventure. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you humbled that your story has a place for us. Lord, we ask forgiveness for the times where we take the, try to take center stage in that story, where we think our needs, our wants, our anger or jealousy or greed or a thousand other ways that we can 
rebel, take over that story. Lord, we come before you now asking for forgiveness, asking a God who protects and provides. Lord, we ask for forgiveness, and we are bold to ask because you promise through your word that when we hear your sins are forgiven, they are. Lord, we ask that you help us encounter you this day. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.